Hello, and welcome to the Chest Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I would like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominic Pepper. I'm the host of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really fascinating conversation on the effectiveness of flexible bronchoscopy simulation training. Today, we're very fortunate to have Ms. Evelyn Gerritsen as our guest. Evelyn, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Eveline Gerritsen. I'm a PhD student at the School of Health Professional Education at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. I have a background in biomedical sciences, major molecular life sciences, and I've started working on a PhD project in September 2020, focused on flexible bronchoscopy simulation training. It is quite a relevant topic in this medical simulation training era, but also specifically in the Netherlands, since since 2020, all Dutch novice pulmonology residents are obliged to follow a one-day simulation training program in flexible bronchoscopy. This program was um, actually implemented on a nationwide level across multiple simulation centers, and me and the research team focus on evaluating this nationally implemented training program. Um, so that's basically my background. And uh, recently, me and six other researchers, Alban Shen, uh, Jauke Annema, Marleen Gounier, Erik van der Heijden, Walter van Mook, and Frank Smink, wrote a systematic review on the effectiveness of flexible oncoscopy simulation-based training. Perfect. So maybe, Evelyn, you could explain to us, um, you decided to do the systematic review, but let's dial it back a little. Why did you get involved in evaluating uh, flexible bronchoscopy and specifically simulation-based training? Well, um, basically since uh, 2020, the, as I said, the Dutch uh, pulmonology residents are obliged to follow a one-day simulation training program. And we thought actually that the fact that this simulation training program was implemented on a nationwide level across all these different multiple simulation centers made it very interesting to, yeah, to look into that. Um, and, uh, well, we think in general, generally speaking, um, simulation is very worthwhile in this, uh, during these days. Um, I think we, um, me and my research team, team, we all agree that uh, asking residents to practice on patients uh, is highly ethical, questionable when a simulation alternative is available. And we thought that evaluating this um, nationally implemented simulation training program might lead to some new, very interesting insights. So that's why. Great. And then so you decided to do a systematic review to evaluate um, whether it is effective. Maybe you could tell us what your study aims for the systematic review were and what your methods were. Yeah, sure. Um, so we basically had three study aims. The first being summarizing the current evidence on the effectiveness of simulation-based training while taking into account the quality of published studies. Um, second, we wanted to give an overview of the general and instructional features of the investigated training programs. And finally, we aim to describe the relation between instructional features and outcomes to identify the most effective training strategies. Um, and in order to do so, we, um, we use the following methods. Um, we basically 
started with the literature search in four databases. Using a search strategy we developed in collaboration with an experienced research librarian. And then me and another reviewer, Aoban Shen, one of the co-authors, screened results against the inclusion criteria and performed data extraction. And for this data extraction, we assessed characteristics of papers, such as simulator modality, outcome measures, and the, intervention, uh, the intervention's effects on the outcome measures. And we also looked at the presence of general and instructional features in these training programs. And with general features, I mean things like training duration and assessment methods. And for instructional features, we looked at the presence of instructional features often used in medical simulations, as described in an earlier reviewer by um, Isenberg and colleagues. For instance, if the program was integrated in the curriculum, was there a range in task difficulty? Was there a clinical variation in the simulations, etc.? And then for quality assessment, we used the medical education research study quality instrument and we measured risk as a risk of bias as well. And then finally, we related the study's methodological quality and characteristics to their results to draw conclusions about the effectiveness of the instructional features. Great. So for the benefit of our audience, maybe you could define for us um, what did you consider effective training um, and why did you choose those criteria? Well, um, actually, it's a very interesting question because we've been also thinking uh, about this. Uh, well, for us, it was like we took a look at the outcome measures and tried to see like what, were the, what was the intervention effect on the outcome measures. And um, well, the thing that we uh, found um, is that uh, the thing that we found the most important um, is that um, uh, if the intervention, so the simulation intervention, actually has positive consequences with regards to um, uh, trainees' competences in a patient setting. So I think if trainees' um, bronchoscopy competences improve following training in the patient setting, then uh, we can say we might conclude that um, the simulation intervention was effective. But uh, with regards to the studies we included, we also found that there was kind of that there were plenty studies um, conducted uh, in a simulation outcome uh, setting, so that they only measured um, simulation outcomes. Um, and I think to one extent, you can also say that studies with uh, tremendous outcomes in a simulation setting also can be, um, if that's the case, that these studies can also be considered successful and therefore bronchoscopy simulation can also be considered effective to a certain extent. So that's how I would define effectiveness. Great. So let's dig into that a little bit deeper because this is probably the crux of um, the take-home message from your uh, systematic review. Um, what should folks consider as being competent in flexible bronchoscopy? Um, and does that differ from uh, the outcomes that are measured in simulation training? Um, well, I think... Um uh, what, would, what, what would I consider as good bronchoscopy competence is that the resident is able to perform a bronchoscopy in a patient setting while, for instance, being assessed uh, by an expert using a validated assessment tool. Um, and with regards to this, we found that the majority of included studies actually, uh, first of all, all, all of them use different assessment tools, not all of them validated. But moreover, the uh, majority of assessment took place in the simulation setting. 
which might indeed be a bit different um, and also less effective maybe than uh, studies who have these results in a patient setting uh, measured with validated assessment methods. Gotcha. So let's jump into your key findings then, and then we can come circle back to this question because it's really important, uh, the difference between a stimulation outcome versus a, a bronchoscopy outcome in a patient. What did you um, discover in your findings of your systematic review, and how did you interpret them? Well, we found in total 14 studies of moderate to high quality, with the majority having positive results, suggesting that it is an effective training method to teach bronchoscopy skills to novices. However, we also found that most studies evaluated results in a simulation setting, making it hard to draw any conclusions with regards to effectiveness in a patient setting at this stage. We did find some studies with positive results in a patient setting, and we found that these patient studies with the highest quality had two instructional features in common. These were basically programs that had simulations with a range in task difficulty and were integrated training program in the curriculum making these two features probably important to teach novices bronchoscopy skills that do lead to improved bronchoscopy performance in a patient setting. But um, we also found that there was a lot of heterogeneity with regards to outcome measures, with the majority of studies using, using different ones, making it really hard to quantitatively compare the results of these studies. And um, with regards to interpreting these findings, I think we can conclude that simulation is an effective method to teach bronchoscopy skills. Uh, we all think that educators should use simulation to teach bronchoscopy skills to residents. Um, but at the same time, we see that evidence on the effectiveness of simulation on skills in a patient setting is unfortunately lacking. And also these studies, um, these studies that, that are out there are heterogeneous, like using so many different outcome measures and assessment methods and structuring that program in all these different ways. So take it together. Um, how can one interpret this? I think we should use simulation to teach bronchoscopy, but it will be very worthwhile for future studies to have homogeneous outcome measures, validated outcome measures, that also look at results in a patient setting. So... Definitely. Um, so, so let's unpack that uh, further. So let's talk about the simulation-based training. Could you see a common theme in terms of um, the prior experience of the novices, what uh, education level they were, were they residents, were they fellows, um, had they had any experience prior? Um, what did the simulation training involve? Um, did it include uh, didactics? Did it include hands-on for a specific period of time? How often were they assessed? Um, well, I think um, with regards to these studies, many studies actually looked at uh, medical students who are not, I think, um, at least in the Netherlands, but probably in other countries as well, not very representative for the actual population uh, for which the intervention is meant, actually. Um, and there was actually a wide variety of how these programs were structured, like some of them lasted only 40 minutes, I think, and others... Um, multiple days, weeks, or even months. Um, and with regards to these instructional features, so what kind of features were in there? Like, did they use a lot of clinical variation? Did they integrate the program in the curriculum? We actually found a lot of differences between the different programs there. So I think I cannot give this one, like, major finding, um, except for that we found that in the most studies, um, 
um, trainees had to pre-study beforehand, so meaning that they had to read some literature or watch a video before the training. But apart from that, there was no apparent common pattern, not in the structure of the training program, not in the instructional features of the training program. Um, yeah, so that's basically it, I would say. And then when dealing with the um, uh, simulation tra training that actually translated it into patient care, what features did you think were important there um, that those studies included? Well, we found interestingly that these both programs both um, implemented a training program in the curriculum, which is very interesting, I think, since uh, nowadays with all these nice simulators available, it's very important to integrate the curriculum, um, to integrate the training program in the curriculum, since that would mean that all trainees uh, use the simulators to practice um, their skills, while not integrating the, uh, the training program in the curriculum would mean that some of the trainees would not practice their uh, skills on a simulator and then move to the patient setting. And some uh, another feature these uh, these two studies with good outcomes in the patient setting had in common was a range in task difficulty, meaning that they had different simulated tasks with different ranges of difficulties. Um, so those were the two uh, main um, features, I would say, that are important to improve resident bronchoscopy performance in a patient setting. And if you had to design a simulation-based program that looked at flexible bronchoscopy based on the systematic review that you performed, what components do you think should be included in it? And what would you add to ensure that it actually gets translated into better patient care? Um, well, to get started with is that, yeah, I would integrate the training program in the curriculum. But with regards to, like, let's say just one of these training days, I'll make sure that there will be a lot of supervision since I think just letting people practice their skills on a simulator without any supervision might not lead to the best outcomes. Of course, their skills might improve, but I think um, experienced pulmonologists might really help with that. Uh, for instance, in the Netherlands, in this nationwide uh, implemented training program, two residents practice their skills during one simulation training day while being constantly supervised by uh, an experienced pulmonologist. And I think that's very interesting because this pulmonologist can get, then give them um, very nice feedback on the spot and also some nice how-to instructions. So I would definitely do that and also um, uh, indeed uh, use this, use simulations of a different degree of difficulties. I think that's also very worthwhile. But maybe to add up on that, I think it would also be very nice to um, have like a variety of simulation tasks. Um, because I think uh, when it comes to bronchoscopy in practice, um, it's not that all patients are the same. So I think it would be nice to have these different variations. So different clinical settings that uh, residents can practice on the simulator. Um, and what I also would do is just um, is to implement the simulation training maybe in a, on a longitudinal level. So not only one training day, but also ask them like a few months later when they do have some clin clinical experience to get back to the simulation center and then again practice and get these how-to instructions by, um, by an experienced pulmonologist. So I think I would consider these components as very important, very essential um, to achieve yeah, high training effectiveness. 
great. I definitely agree with both quantitative and qualitative uh, evaluation and a long uh, period of time. Evelyn, uh, there are no perfect studies. Uh, what key limitations do you want the audience to be aware of your systematic review? Um, systematic reviews uh, are usually, uh, the limitations are related to the limitations of the studies that were included. Um, so, so what were the limitations in the studies that you analyzed and what were the limitations in your overall systematic review? Uh, well, the limitations in the studies that I analyzed was that there was a lot of heterogeneity in outcome measures and assessment methods. Um, and yeah, for Horifi, of course, that is not the best thing because for us, it, that made it impossible to compare the included studies and their features and results quantitatively. Uh, but something else we found was that most studies used a pre-test, post-test design. Um, and it's kind of, I would say, quite a logical design to choose in these settings. But it also has this drawback, and that is that the pretest per se can already influence the score a, trainee's op a trainee obtains on the post-test, with, even without the intervention. And I think it's important that studies should correct for this effect, because this might lead to an overestimation of the observed effect. And none of the studies in our review actually did that. Uh, and with regards to our own limitations, is, yeah, we couldn't, uh, due to this heterogeneity, uh, perform a meta-analysis. Well, I think a meta-analysis will be very worthwhile for the research community. Um, also, the methods to calculate risk of bias were not validated yet. And yeah, the number of included studies was quite, was quite small, limiting the ability to formulate well-founded conclusions about which instructional features correlated with training effectiveness. And those were, I think, the key limitations of our study. Yeah, and then it, it struck me that only 14 studies were available um, in the entire literature on this topic, and yet uh, I would imagine there's tens of thousands of these procedures, at least performed in the United States and global, I would imagine hundreds of thousands of flexible bronchoscopies, yet there seems to be such little data on how to effectively um, have simulation-based training and to ensure that our trainees are adequately prepared to um, safely perform procedures in patients that are actually effective. Why do you think that is? Um, well, I think first of all, uh, with, we've, so we found 14 studies and it was also partially because we chose to only look at studies with flexible bronchoscopy simulation training and novices, which is already quite of a narrow um, inclusion criteria, I would say since there's also a lot of studies we look at EBUS um, or rigid bronchoscopy. And I think that's also why we only found, um, uh, like we only found 14 studies. And in addition, we also excluded uh, studies on Kirkpatrick level one. So studies with only trainee reported outcomes, like uh, questionnaires with their satisfaction. Um, but apart from that, uh, why do I think that there's not so much evidence um, yeah, I think just it generally, uh, generally speaking, it's pretty hard to set up a very decent study in this field, like due to the nature of the intervention and because of ethical reasons, I think it's very hard to set up uh, a blinded uh, randomized control trial, which is obviously the gold standard. So I think that plays a role. And yeah, of course, what also might play a role is that simulators uh, have only been implemented since the last two decades especially since the last decade. So it might like, like take some extra time before more and more studies will arise. Uh, so I think those might be the main reasons for that. 
Gotcha. And then at the beginning of this podcast, you mentioned that the reason that you went into uh, the systematic review uh, was because uh, in the Netherlands, they implemented a simulation-based program. How does your study influence um, uh, the, the, the nationwide program in the Netherlands, and how could it influence um, a practice uh, throughout the world? Um, that's a very interesting question. Um, well, first of all, it kind of... Uh, so we set up this program three, four years ago. And it is, of course, it has several elements. But the thing... Uh, but the one of the findings is that in a review, we found that um, um, good training programs are integrated in the curriculum and they have a range uh, in uh, task difficulty in their simulations. And our study has that. Uh, but on the other hand, how um, um, we advocate for homogeneous outcome measures in our systematic review, preferably validated. Um, and um, we, in our uh, study where we uh, investigate this uh, Dutch simulation training, we do use a validated uh, outcome measure. We use, we use a validated assessment tool, or actually we're co currently collecting validity evidence for this assessment tool. But of course, since we developed our own assessment tool, it's not very homogeneous in the sense that other studies uh, so far have used this as well. So that kind of, I would say, influenced, influences um, um, our own uh, simulation training program in a way that it would be nice if we would have used this um, assessment tool that is already out there. But on the other hand, we have such a specific training program uh, and we basically looked in current assessment tools and we couldn't find any assessment tool that was a very good fit. So instead we chose a different, an existing one and adapted it very, yeah, accordingly. But, um, so, but yeah, I think that's basically the discrepancy between, uh, our simulation training and, uh, the findings of the systematic review. But that is, of course, something we could have not known before and before we implemented this, uh, training program. I agree. And then Evelyn, I just want to give you the last word. Um, based on your uh, systematic review, based on um, the findings that you have, what key message do you want our audience to have um, as we conclude this podcast? Um, well, um, we think the, uh, our study shows that um, simulation training is effective. And as we provided clear cues on how to design these simulation training programs, um, I think it's very important for future programs that they should integrate their program in the curriculum and that they should have simulated tasks with the range and difficulty. Um, and um, uh, we think this is very relevant since simulation training programs are being implemented widely nowadays. Um, and while taken together, I believe our study contributes to our understanding by summarizing ex existing knowledge and identifying gaps in current evidence, areas where future research should focus on. And that is that future studies should basically um, use validated homogeneous outcome measures, preferably measured in a patient setting. Agree. We need to make sure that whatever simulation-based training occurs actually benefits patients and is uh, tested in patients so that they ultimately benefit. Yeah. A very big thank you to um, Evelyn uh, for a great conversation and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper and this is a chess podcast. <laughs>